The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf with another podcast. We welcome as our guest today His Eminence Robert Cardinal Seurat, Prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. Cardinal Seurat is the author of two wonderful books, God or Nothing and The Power of Silence Against the Dictatorship of Noise. Benedict XVI thinks very highly of Cardinal Seurat. He wrote a brief essay for a future reprinting of the second book, The Power of Silence, in which the former pope praises the cardinal and says, With Cardinal Seurat, the master of silence and of interior prayer, the liturgy is in good hands. And I wholeheartedly embrace every word of Benedict's praise for Cardinal Seurat. Cardinal Seurat recently wrote a piece in French for La Nef, a French magazine, for the 10th anniversary of the promulgation of the text of Benedict XVI's Apostolic Letter Motu Proprio Summorum Pontificum. I call Summorum Pontificum the Emancipation Proclamation because it freed priests from the tyranny of superiors who would forbid them from using their older form of the Roman Rite. Summorum Pontificum is a great uh, gift of enormous importance for the whole Church. I believe that it was a key element of what I call Benedict XVI's Marshall Plan for the renewal of the whole church after the vast destruction wreaked in the church for the last decades, and uh, to create also a strong bulwark against the dictatorship of relativism. In any event, Cardinal Seurat's piece, in honor of Samorum Pontificum, uh, has been hard to get. Uh, first of all, it's in French and uh, uh, published in Le Nef, and that's very hard to get a hold of here, at least where I am. Uh, they didn't put it online. There were some fragments from it uh, out there on the Internet. But I finally got my hands on the whole thing and can now also provide a full translation into English. So as you listen to this translation, tune your ears for the following points. Cardinal Seurat makes the case that Benedict XVI in Summorum Pontificum goes beyond the mere regulation of forms of liturgy. Benedict tried to underscore the primacy of God in liturgy, and so Seurat thinks that Summorum Pontificum is a magisterial document of great importance. Seurat thinks that Benedict thinks that the two missals, the Novus Ordo Missal and the traditional Latin Mass Missal, uh, to use common terminology, are expressions, two expressions of the same lex orandi. The, you know the old phrase, the law of praying or the law of believing are interrelated to each other. You change the one, you change the other. And both of them, the way that we pray and the reciprocal relationship it has with what we believe then produce our, the way that we live, the lex vivendi, so lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Cardinal Seurat uh, wants to diminish the contrast between a pre-conciliar and a post-conciliar church, and therefore pre-conciliar, post-conciliar liturgy. The Second Vatican Council, um, Cardinal Seurat says, wanted to 
deepen the liturgical forms rather than break with tradition. And that's certainly uh, indicated in the text of the Council's uh, constitution on the liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. You can, however, judge for yourself whether or not that's what actually resulted from that constitution. Uh, after all, the Council Fathers mandated only a very few things, including that Latin should be retained and so forth. Uh, the Council Fathers said explicitly that changes had to be, first of all, for the true good of the Church, and that they must come organically from the established rites without sharp innovations. Now, uh, we have to ask, is that what actually happened? Uh, just as a couple of examples, how, uh, for example, was the elimination of the prayers at the foot of the altar for the good of the church? I mean, who was asking for that? Uh, how, for example, was the jettisoning of the traditional offertory prayers for the good of the church? And who on earth thinks that their replacement with modified Jewish blessing prayers was not a complete rupture and a wholesale innovation when it comes to the tradition of Roman liturgy. And it was the innovation of the highest order, one of the deepest ruptures that we can imagine. But I digress. Back to Cardinal Seraph. Uh, the Cardinal talks about the mutual enrichment desired by Pope Benedict. Uh, this mutual enrichment, I've been calling this a gravitational pull between the two rites. Um, Benedict's idea is that slowly over time, a third thing may emerge from the um, contact, side-by-side -side contact between the older form and the newer form. Uh, Benedict had in mind to jumpstart the organic development of worship that was so harshly, brutally interrupted by the hasty imposition of an artificial rite, as he refers to it, pasted together on the desks of experts. And so Cardinal uh, Sabra uh, understands this as being a great priority uh, for the church, this mutual enrichment, this experience between the two. He wants to diminish contrasts, if he can, and uh, let the rites actually work in the way that they are intended to. Cardinal Seurat um, addresses himself to those who use and frequent the extraordinary form, the traditional form of Mass. He warns quite properly against an archaeologism, archaeologizing, as Pope uh, Pius Twelfth also did in, I believe, Mediator Dei. He warns against bourgeois posturing. Yeah, nobody likes bourgeois posturing. He urges uh, real active participation, actuosa participatio. Um, I think we have to understand this term just a little bit before moving on. Actuosa, the actuosa, or active participation that was really desired by the Council Fathers, was not simply everyone being able to carry a bowl around or something like that or necessarily having to say, sing every possible word of every possible hymn or antiphon or whatever. It also includes active listening. It's mostly, I would argue, uh, their desire for the faithful to participate with real active receptivity to what the true actor in liturgy is trying to 
to give us. The true actor, of course, is Christ. And every word and every gesture of our sacred rites is him speaking, him gesturing. He is, he is the one who's active, truly active. And we should be actively receptive to everything that he wants to give us through Holy Church and our worship. So um, Cardinal Seurat talks about active participation in the proper sense. And he says quite rightly that the extraordinary form, and this is great, the extraordinary form is not a preconciliar rite. It's in use now, after all. And so Benedict really made it a post-conciliar liturgy, which is rather amusing. Seurat says, and uh, I quote here, the possibility of celebrating according to the ancient Roman Missal must be strongly encouraged as a sign of the permanent identity of the church. Uh, end quote. Now, if that isn't endor an endorsement, I don't know what is. Uh, Sarah has some good warnings about bad things that can happen with the ordinary form, the Novus Ordo, such as the possibility of domination by the priest, I think we've all experienced that. And he speaks highly of the influence that the older form can have on the newer form, especially when it comes to gestures and reverence and the use of Latin and so forth. And of course, Cardinal Seurat wouldn't be Cardinal Seurat without talking about the role of silence. A final note. Uh, I won't read the footnotes and references that he gives uh, because I want to keep the reading smooth. Also, I'm going to try to indicate with my voice when he is quoting someone. Also, this isn't my translation. It was sent to me uh, by a very kind person in France. It, it's a great translation, but there are a few little insignificant rough spots that aren't going to really bother us at all. So, without additional delay, here is an English rendering of Cardinal Seurat's piece in the French magazine La Nef for the 10th anniversary of Samorum Pontificum. An unofficial English translation of Towards a Liturgical Reconciliation by Cardinal Robert Seurat. The liturgy of the Church has been the central activity of my life. It has become the center of my theological work, Benedict XVI declared. However, he didn't teach much about this subject during his pontificate. Granted, his homilies will endure as must-read documents for generations, but we must also emphasize the major importance of his motu proprio summorum pontificum. Far from addressing only the legal standing of the ancient Roman Missal, the motu proprio asks the question of the very essence of the liturgy and its place in the church. The teaching contained in this document, therefore, doesn't aim only at regulating the harmonious coexistence of the two forms of the Roman Mass. No, what is at stake is the place of God, the primacy of God. As the Pope of the Liturgy stresses, a true renewal of the liturgy is the fundamental condition for the renewal of the Church. The motu proprio is a magisterial document of capital importance, addressing the profound sense of the liturgy and, consequently, the whole life of the Church. Ten years after its publication, it is necessary to make a global appraisal. Have we put this teaching into practice? 
Have we understood it in its profound sense? The liturgy has become a battlefield, the place where those loyal to the preconciliar missile clash with those loyal to the missile born of the reform of 1969. The sacrament of love and unity, the sacrament which allows God to become our life and sustenance and make us godlike by coming to dwell in us and us in him, had become an occasion for hatred and spite. The modu proprio put a definitive end to this situation, for Benedict XVI has declared, with magisterial authority, that it is not fitting to speak of these two versions of the Roman Missal as though they were two rites. It is rather a twofold usage of the same and only rite. Thus he equally dismisses all would-be liturgical warriors. The Pope's words are strong, and they clearly reveal an intention to deliver a definitive teaching. The two missiles are two expressions of the same Lex Orandi. These two expressions of the Church's Lex Orandi will in no way lead to division in the Church's Lex Credendi, for they are two usages of the one Roman rite. I am intimately convinced that we have not finished discovering all the practical implications of this teaching. Here I would like to draw a few consequences. First of all, the church does not contradict itself. There is not a preconciliar church on the one hand and a postconciliar church on the other. There is only the one church, sacrament and continued presence of Christ on this earth. It is time Christians contemplated this presence of Christ with eyes of faith and, consequently, rejected all worldly, ideological, sociological, or media-bound outlooks. The Church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, in space and in time, according to our credo. Any reform in the Church is a return to the foundations of faith, never the victory of one clan on another. Therefore, those who claim that using the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite would call the authority of the Second Vatican Council into question are in grave error. As Benedict XVI says with authority, this fear is unfounded. How could we suppose that the Council wanted to contradict that which was previously practiced? Such a hermeneutic of rupture is contrary to the Catholic spirit. The Council did not intend to break with the liturgical forms inherited from tradition, but on the contrary to deepen them. The Constitution Sacrosanctum Concilium specifies... Any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing. It would therefore be erroneous to consider that the two liturgical forms adhere to two different theologies. The Church has only one truth to teach and to proclaim, Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. It is what St. Paul declared to the Corinthians, and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not in loftiness of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of Christ, for I judged not myself to know anything among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. This truth has consequences pertaining to theology and to the putting into practice of the liturgy. Since there is a profound continuity and unity between the two forms of the Roman Rite, Necessarily, each form must illuminate and enrich the other. Benedict XVI establishes a profound and fruitful principle. There is no contradiction between the two editions of the Missale Romanum. 
The history of the liturgy is one of growth and progress, never one of rupture. He barely sketches out the consequences. Each form of usage of the Roman rite can enrich the other. He gives us a few leads. In the ancient missal we can and should insert the new saints and some of the new prefaces. In the celebration of the Mass according to the Missal of Paul VI, the sacredness which draws many people to the ancient rite can be manifested more strongly than has been the case up to now. It is a priority that with the help of the Holy Spirit we should examine with prayer and study how to return to a reformed common rite, always with the purpose of an inner reconciliation of the Church. At the moment there is still violence, spite, and painful oppositions, which destroy the church and drive us away from the unity for which Jesus prayed and died upon the cross. It is our task, ten years after that prophetic gesture, to put into practice the mutual enrichment which Pope Benedict called an internal reconciliation of the church. Pope Francis' pastoral courage calls us to act in a very concrete way. Let us do it. I would like to address firstly those who practice the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite. Dear friends, the celebration of a liturgical form must not become a kind of aesthetic bourgeois posturing or a type of cultural archaeologism. Pope Francis recently warned us against an attitude of defensive rigidity. The liturgy consists in truly entering the mystery of God, in letting ourselves be carried into the mystery and in being the mystery, he said. The extraordinary form allows this preeminently. Let us not make it into a seed of division. The use of the extraordinary form is an integral part of the Catholic Church's living heritage. It is not a museum piece, nor a witness to a glorious but bygone past. Its vocation is to be just as fruitful for today's Christians. Therefore, it would be fitting for those who use the ancient missal to observe the essential criteria of the Council's Constitution for Sacred Liturgy. It is indispensable that these celebrations incorporate a just conception of the participatio actuosa of the faithful present. The proclamation of the readings must be understandable by the faithful. Likewise, the faithful must be able to respond to the celebrant, and not be lost and mute spectators. Lastly, the council asks for a noble simplicity in the ceremonies, without useless repetitions. It is the task of the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei to proceed prudently in this matter, and in an organic way. It is to be hoped, where it is feasible, and if certain communities ask for it, that the liturgical calendars can be harmonized. The paths towards making both lectionaries converge must be explored. In any case, the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite can no longer be called the preconciliar Rite. It is now a form of the Roman liturgy which must be illuminated, vivified, and guided by the teachings of Vatican II. By way of jest, one could say that Benedict XVI made the extraordinary form into a post-conciliar liturgy. The possibility of celebrating according to the ancient Roman Missal must be strongly encouraged as a sign of the permanent identity of the Church. That which up to 1969 was the liturgy of the Church, the most sacred of all things for all of us, 
cannot become, after 1969, the most unacceptable of all things. It is absolutely necessary to acknowledge that what was fundamental in 1969 remains so in 2017 and beyond. It is the same sacredness, the same liturgy. The two liturgical forms pertain to the same lex orandi. What is this fundamental law of liturgy? Allow me to quote once again from Pope Benedict. The erroneous interpretation of the liturgical reform, which has long been spread inside the Catholic Church, led more and more to giving the first place to the element of instruction and of our own activity and creativity. Man's doing nearly led to forgetting the presence of God. The existence of the Church draws its life from the correct celebration of the liturgy. The Church is in danger when the primacy of God no longer appears in the liturgy, and consequently in our life. The most profound cause of the crisis which shook up the Church lies in the darkening of the priority of God in the liturgy. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger reminds us that the paschal mystery, in other words, the innermost kernel of the event which redeemed the whole of humanity, constitutes the kernel of the work of Jesus. The paschal mystery, and not the work of men, is the true content of the liturgy. In it, through the faith and the prayer of the church, the work of Jesus continually comes to meet mankind, to permeate it, and to restore it to its divine filiation. This is what the ordinary form must learn by way of priority, the primacy of God. In this it can, it must, let itself be illuminated by the extraordinary form. The Council tells us that the liturgy is first and foremost the worship of the divine majesty. It places us into the presence of the mystery of divine transcendence. It has pedagogical value only in so far as it is entirely ordered to the glorification of God and to divine worship. Christ did not abolish the sacred but brought it to its fulfillment by instituting a new form of worship which, although fully spiritual, still makes use of signs and of rites because we are underway through time. Let me humbly express my fear. The liturgy in its ordinary form could make us risk turning away from God because of the central and massive role of the priest. He is constantly with his microphone, and his gaze and attention are constantly turned towards the people. He is as an opaque screen between God and man. When we celebrate Mass... Let us always place upon the altar a big crucifix, a visible crucifix, as a point of reference to all, for the priest and for the faithful. Thus we have our East, because in the end, Christ crucified is the Christian East, as Benedict XVI says. I am convinced that the liturgy can be enriched by the sacred attitudes characteristic of the extraordinary form, by all the gestures which manifest our adoration for the Holy Eucharist, keeping the thumb and forefinger joined from the consecration on, genuflecting before the elevation or after the peripsum, receiving communion kneeling and on the tongue, thus allowing oneself to be fed like a child, as God himself commands. 
I am the Lord thy God. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. There is nothing childish or pertaining to a superstitious mentality about this. The people of God, guided by its intuitions about its faith, knows that without a radical humility, made of gestures of adoration and sacred rites, there is no friendship possible with God. The simplest among the faithful know that these sacred gestures are one of their most precious treasures. The use of Latin in certain parts of the Mass can also be helpful to recover the deepest essence of the liturgy. Being a fundamentally mystical and contemplative act, the liturgy is out of reach from our human actions. However, it presupposes on our part an openness to the mystery being celebrated. Thus, the conciliar constitution on the liturgy both recommends a full understanding of the rites and prescribes that the faithful may also be able to say or to sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. A true understanding of the rites is not the fruit of unaided human reason, nor should it want to grasp, understand, and dominate everything. But will we have the courage to follow the counsel even thus far? I entreat young priests to jettison boldly the ideologies of those makers of horizontal liturgies and to return to the directives of Sacrosanctum Concilium. May your liturgical celebrations lead men to encounter God face to face and to adore Him, and may that encounter transform them and make them godlike. When gazing upon God, it is not the determining factor. All the rest loses its orientation, says Benedict XVI. The converse is also true. When we lose our orientation of heart and body towards God, we cease to be determined by our relation to Him. We literally lose the sang of the liturgy. That's a pun by the cardinal. In French, sang means both direction and meaning. So he's saying we literally lose the meaning, the direction of the liturgy. To be oriented towards God is first and foremost an inner disposition, a conversion of our soul towards the Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life. To this end, it uses signs and simple means. Ad Orientem celebration is part of them. It is one of the treasures of the Christian people, which allows us to conserve the spirit of the liturgy. Oriented celebration must not become the expression of a partisan and polemic attitude. It must, on the contrary, remain the expression of the most intimate and essential motion of any liturgy, the turning towards the Lord who comes. I had occasion to emphasize also the importance of liturgical silence. In The Spirit of the Liturgy, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote, Whoever has experienced a community united by the silent prayer of the canon knows what true silence represents. There, silence is at once a powerful, piercing cry cast towards God and a communion of prayer filled with the Spirit. In his time, he had made the powerful assertion that reciting the whole Eucharistic prayer out loud was not the only means to ensure the participation of all. We must work towards a balanced solution and open spaces for silence in this domain. I call 
with all my heart, to put into practice the liturgical reconciliation taught by Pope Benedict in the pastoral spirit of Pope Francis. The liturgy must never become the standard of one party. For some, the expression, reform of the reform, has become the symbol of the domination of one clan upon another. The expression, therefore, has perhaps become inopportune. This is why I would now rather speak of liturgical reconciliation. In the church, a Christian has no opponents. As Cardinal Ratzinger wrote, we must find again the sense of the sacred, the courage to distinguish what is Christian from what is not, not in order to set up barriers, but to transform, to be really dynamic. More than a reform of the reform, a reform of hearts is at stake. It is a reconciliation of both forms of the same right, a mutual enrichment. The liturgy must always be reconciled with itself, with its deepest being. Illuminated by the teachings of Benedict XVI's motu proprio, comforted by Pope Francis' boldness, it is time we went to the bottom of this process of reconciliation of the liturgy with itself. What a magnificent sign it would be if, in a future edition of the Reformed Roman Missal, we could insert the prayers at the foot of the altar from the extraordinary form as a supplement, perhaps in a simplified and adapted version, as well as the prayers of the offertory, which contain a beautiful epiclesis that completes the Roman canon. It would then finally be manifest that both liturgical forms illuminate each other in continuity and without opposition. Then we could give back to the people of God the treasure to which it is so deeply attached. A few days ago, Pope Francis exhorted us, It is fitting to eschew two recurring temptations. The first is to seek diversity without unity. This happens when we want to distinguish ourselves, when we create parties and coalitions, when we rigidify positions of exclusion, when we withdraw into our particularisms, maybe considering we are better than others and always right. The opposite temptation consists in seeking unity without diversity. Thus, unity becomes uniformity, an obligation to do everything together and in the same way. In this way, unity becomes homogeneity and freedom disappears. As St. Paul said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Cardinal Seurat's contribution to the French magazine La Nef for the 10th anniversary of the promulgation of Benedict XVI's extremely important motu proprio apostolic letter, Summorum Pontificum, which I call the Emancipation Proclamation. I hope you were edified by it. I suspect that not all of you will be entirely on board with every aspect of what the Cardinal offered. Um, however, his piece is, without question, deeply thoughtful, 
I think it's very helpful, and it's quite inspiring. And I believe it is worthy of prayerful consideration. So thank you very much for listening. This is Father John Zolsdorf. Please pray for me as I will for you. 